So last week we started, or two weeks ago, I'm sorry, we started a series from the book of Philippians. And if you have your Bible um, or you have your tablet or your phone, you can be turning to Philippians 2. Um, the first week we, we talked about this idea of joy. And, and this word kara occurs in Philippians 19 times, and it means joy or rejoice or gladness. And we see this over and over um, Paul writing this quarantined under house arrest in Rome and talking about how we have joy in the midst of an incredibly anxious world. And what we said the very first week is, is there is this sense of anxiety right now in our world. And it's not this debilitating anxiety that just doesn't allow you to function but rather this kind of low-level anxiety just below the surface that makes it really difficult most days to, to feel like everything is okay. We, we wake up and we wonder, okay, when, when does this end? When do we get to stop wearing masks? When do we start getting to go to normal things and, and everything look like it used to? And, and I don't know if it will or when it will. I don't know any of those answers. And I think that's what contributes a lot to the anxiety and the angst that we feel. We want it to be right again, and it's not. And the, the worst part about it is we don't know when it will be. And that makes it hard. And so what we said in this series, the goal of this series is to give you a new word each week that helps us develop and cultivate a spirit of joy in the midst of an anxious world. And so the first week we talked about the word gratitude and how important gratitude is for us in recognizing the goodness of God. It reminds us of the reality of the goodness of God. Gratitude is so important. Then last week we talked about purpose. And how we must have a purpose in our life. And the things that happen to us don't have a purpose, but what we do with them has a purpose. And if your life has a purpose, you will repurpose your pain for the glory of Christ. No, no matter what happens, those circumstances will be repurposed for good. And you see this so many times, people who've lost a loved one, and have an incredible ministry to other people who have lost. Or those who have gone through divorce, who have an incredible ministry for those who've lost through divorce. And those who've gone through financial difficulty and gotten out of debt and kind of re reworked their life, and, and they have an incredible ministry to those people. The, the pain never has a purpose because it's just something that happens. It's a circumstance. But... If you are a follower of Jesus, you will learn to repurpose your pain for the glory of Christ. So this week, we're going to talk about a word, and it's a word that we throw around a lot in church world. It's a word that we say is so important, and the more you look around our world, the more it seems like an impossibility. And the word is unity. Unity. Now, if I were to step back for just a moment and describe our world, especially politically, just our political landscape right now, the word out of every word I could possibly pick is this right here, unified. Right? Yeah. And if, if I were to, to look up and just describe our world and the way we think we should respond to this pandemic, 
Uh, the word that most comes to my mind is, is unity. Because, I mean, obviously everyone thinks the same thing about the masks and about the social distancing and about how long we should go on with this and what it's doing. I mean, everyone's on the same page, right? Yeah? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when we talk about racial inequality, when we talk about protests, when we just talk about life in general, for, for my, my, my guess is, for the most part, the word that does not come to mind over and over and over and over in our world right now is unity. And i got to ask the question, is unity even a possibility? Because we are on so many different levels across the board. Across the board, there are so many different ideas and thoughts. And here's how we fix things. And here's how we make things better. And here's how we move on from this. And here's how we get over this. Is unity even a possibility? You see, one of the things I believe that contributes right now to some of the unrest, and I think this is happening in our world, I think it also happens in our churches. And, and here's the deal. For the first time in modern history, because I, I talked about this one time and Leonard Kent raised his hand and goes, well, there was Methuselah who lived 936 years. Okay. <laughs> just, just don't worry right now, okay? For the first time in modern history, we have five generations living together. Right? Right now, the life expectancy of most people, and I didn't look it up, so I don't know the exact, is like 80 to 85 years. And it's a little different with men and women. The life expectancy of most people today, the average, is right around 85 years. If you go back 2,000 years, it was somewhere 30, 40 years old. And I know more people died at birth, and, and there are all kinds of things that happened. But for the first time, we have five generations trying to get along and work together and play nice in the sandbox. And it can be really difficult. And here, here's the deal. For most of you, especially if you're older, you point the finger at the younger generations, right? Well, the, the, these kids these days, kids these days, you know. Here's what one um, teacher said about kids. So, so and you're going to have to put it up there, Stephen, because I didn't memorize this. Children, they have bad manners, okay? Just, just nod along. It's okay. And, and kids, hold on. I got your back. So, okay? If you're, if you're one of the younger generations, hold on. I got your back, okay? Children, they have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents and tyrannize their teachers. Children are now tyrants. Now, here's the deal. I know some people are like, that's right. That's how we fix the world right there. If they'll get it right, then. So this teacher is a guy named Socrates. 
And Socrates said this in the year 470 B.C., 2,500 years ago. Here's the problem with kids these days. And my guess is, for some of you, your parents, especially if you're older, your parents said much of the same things about you and your generation as you were growing up. Because as every generation ages, they begin to develop and take on their own identity. And so as I said, right now there's five generations living together. I want to talk just real briefly about our generations before I get back to this idea of unity because I think it's so, so important right now in our world. Five generations. The, the first is the traditionalists. The traditionalists are those who are part of that World War II generation. Tom Brokaw called them the greatest generation. And, and part of their story, part of their story was living life on the hills of the Great Depression. And part of their story was being right there in the midst of World War II. And the, the unity that that brought about being part of something big. That there was this move from farm life to this urbanized development where cities over the last, over those first 30 to 40 years just exploded in population as people moved from rural America into urban areas. And then there was this confidence in the experts that, that when Tong Brokoff went on the evening news, that you could just take whatever he said as gold. Because it's on TV, and if it's on TV, then obviously it's correct. And, and then there was the baby boomers, which makes up a huge, huge percentage of our church. And the baby boomers are classified by the baby boom. There's this huge explosion and burst, but one of the things that that did was created this world where there was now competition for everything. It wasn't just that some could go to school, but now there was competition to get into the schools, and there was competition in the job market, and things got a lot more difficult. Affluence, our, our country became very much more affluent, and then TVs were wheeled, I should say wheeled or rolled into the living rooms. And even though you only had three channels, and your name was remote, um, <laughs> there was this sense that we were all watching the same thing. And when you got to school the next day, the story was what happened on Gilligan's Island last night. What happened on the, the TV show that everyone got to see. Then there's Gen X. And, and Gen X gets kind of squished between two baby booms. The, the millennials and the baby boomers. And there's not many of them. That's, their, that's why they got the name Gen X, the forgotten generation. It's X in math is the unknown. And so Gen X is that unknown generation that just doesn't really have a place, that's constantly looking for. So it's squished. Divorce becomes a huge defining trait during this generation. Not that they're going through divorce, but that their parents were going divorced. And many in this generation were the latchkey kids. They rode the bus home or they got dropped off and they were given a key. They let themselves in. They did their homework. They took care of themselves and everything until their parents got home. Then we go to millennials. And millennials, their story is so important because their parents were kind of the helicopter parents 
hovering over and making sure they didn't fall and making sure everything was okay. They, they grew up in the consumer age where, where you have a choice all of the time, and technology was something they did not have to learn. Think about that. For, for most of you, you're learning technology, but it has always been a part of their world. And then you go to Gen Z. Gen Z, what, what most call um, live in a post-Christian world, where, where the default answer is no longer, yes, I'm a Christian. The, the world has shifted. They, they live in a post-9-11 world. Where, where everything has been transformed. I remember growing up, going to the airport, and my grandmother would walk me into the airport when I was leaving Phoenix, Arizona, coming back to Dallas. She would walk me into the airport, walk me to the gate, stand at the gate, and wave as my plane drove, flew, rolled back and flew off, I guess. That's how you talk about a plane. Um, we, we drove our plane all the way home to Dallas. It was kind of weird. Um, but... But the world changed, and safety became a huge concern. And where the, the Gen X was able to get on their bike and ride their bike all over the city, now it was, we need to be protected a little bit more. And they live in an instant world where everything you want is at the tip of your fingertips. The, the other day, we, we decided we needed something for one of our kids, and we hopped on Amazon we hit it with our phone, and within two minutes, we had ordered something that would be there the very next day. Right? Here, here's why, and you can say, well, why does that matter? What's the, what's the importance of this? Okay? When you were born, when you were born shapes the way you see the world, how you see others, and how you view God. Because the story that you were born into shapes everything. And, and here's the thing, for, the, for those future generations, the world they live in is the world that we have created. Right? It, we were their parents. We were their grandparents. And you think, okay, well, well why does that matter? But with all of the diversity, with all of the differences, that question of unity becomes such an important question. With all of the difference, differences, is unity even a possibility? And part of the problem is we have confused unity with uniformity. Because when we think in our minds we want to have unity, we think in terms of uniformity. We want to all act and think the same. But here's the deal. The beauty of the body of Christ is its diversity and its oneness in the midst of the diversity. And you can look at church leaders all over the nation, and I've heard this time and time again. Well, if your church really wants to grow and really wants to be successful, then it needs to focus on one or two generations and make that your entire focus. And I would say that's incredibly anti-gospel. That completely goes against the gospel narrative that God is redeeming and restoring 
all things, and he's bringing unity together. Is it easier to do it the other way where we just say, we're just going to worry about a couple generations? Absolutely. But is the beauty of Christ displayed for the world to see in the same way? Not even close. So unity becomes a really important task, but it becomes a really difficult process. So, when I think of what the church is supposed to look like, what does the church look like at its most beautiful? I think to the sport of rowing. I'm not a rower, but I find the sport fascinating because you have these people that are all working um, in perfect synchronization to make it work. And so when the church is working, I think it looks a lot like this. Hey, Stephen, can you... Go to that video. Germany, Phelan Hill. So we are this is the 2016 the Rio Olympics. In lane three, Gold medal Poland. match. In lane one, the Dutch. And it looks two, perfect. Three, Germany in four. They're, they're rowing in together. The they're synchronized. States, they're all moving. And I think that's what the church here. is supposed to look like. Well, I think we're going to see a, a, here, Here's a what the church should the be. But often the church doesn't look quite like this. Often the church... But look for Germany and Great Britain. Looks a little different. These two crews have been battling it out over the last three years. Great Most Britain, of the time, I think the church looks more three like this. I turned off the sound because evidently rowing parents are worse than baseball parents. Yeah. We, we think of the church as being this beautiful, unified body that's working together perfectly. And a lot of times, it doesn't resemble that. And the question, and I, I think this is such a powerful question, is it a possibility? Paul would say, it is. It is. But it doesn't look like just all looking the same. It doesn't look like uniformity. It looks more like unity. And so he says this, Philippians 2, Therefore, if, and I'm going to stop there because that word is pretty important for the rest of this reading. Because what Paul is going to do is he's going to move into these conditional clauses. And a conditional clause is basically, if this is true, if this happens, then this is also true, or this must happen in Paul's case. If this is true, and so he's going to lay out these conditional clauses. He says, therefore, if, going on, no, there we go. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if, if, there is encour if it encourages you that you are loved by Jesus, that you are saved by Jesus, if it encourages you that Christ laid down his life and invited you to be his child, if you have that encouragement, if, going on, any comfort from his love, if it comforts you that Christ passionately loves you regardless of what you've done, where you've been, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit, 
The, the week one, we talked about the partners that are working with Christ, and he has gratitude for these people. So if there's other people sharing in the work of Jesus together, if you're partnering with them, if, if any tenderness and compassion, these partners and partakers that we talked about, if you're all on the same page, if you're loving each other well, if you care about each other. So he, he gives how many conditional statements? Four. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then. If, then. Here's what you got to do. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Wait, we, we said it wasn't about unity. No, it's about focus of mind. Or we said, I'm sorry, we said it wasn't about uniformity. No, it's about focus. It's about moving in the same direction. It's about this like-mindedness with one another. Going on, he says, having the same love. Going on, being one in spirit and of one mind. So if, 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 then, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and mind. Not, not uniformity, but unity. Unity. What, what does it look like? Going on, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain. Nothing. That, that pretty big word, right? Do nothing. I mean, has anyone ever made it through a day with doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Put others before yourself. Now, you read that, and you think, well, okay, unity. Is that possible? Is it a possibility to have unity? And Paul says, yes. And our mind goes, okay, then here's what they need to do. Because if they would get it right, then unity would be possible. But Paul doesn't say that. What Paul says, if you believe this gospel story of Jesus, then unity begins with you. Right? In humility, consider others better than yourself. That, that it begins with you. Okay, so what does that even look like? How do we do that? And, and Paul says, I have the perfect example that you can imitate. Here's what it looks like. I'm, I'm going to give you a picture to imitate. Um, several years ago, we had a leaky faucet in our bathroom, and so I got on YouTube to figure out how to fix it. And so the, the guy on the video is saying, hey, this is a real simple process. You're going to grab this wrench, and you're going to twist, and you're going to torque it, and it's going to be really hard at first, and you're going to think it's going to break. But don't worry. It won't break. Just crank down on it really hard. Got it. Let me tell you, that video is wrong. 
Because if you crank down on that pipe that I had too hard, it's going to break. And so I break this pipe, and I go and I call the plumber, and I say, hey, can you come? i got a, a pipe that's busted now in our bathroom. And he says, sure. So he comes over, and we're talking. I'm showing him the problem, and he goes, what did you do? I said, well, I watched this YouTube video. He goes, oh, man, I am so thankful for YouTube. It makes me so much money. <laughs> He's like, are you a plumber? No, but I did stay at Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> There's something that you can imitate. And if you imitate this, as he's going to say in just a second, then unity is a possibility. It says in verse 5, if your relationships or in your relationships with one another have the same mindset of that as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. So he, he says, if unity is going to be a possibility, then your life must look like Jesus. To, to most people, you hear that and you say, whoa, okay, can't do that. Because Jesus was God. And Jesus could do whatever Jesus wanted to do. But, but I want to remind you of what Paul says. Go, go back, sorry, verse seven, 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. So, so, in other words, while Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully man. And, and what Jesus does is he enters into this world to face everything that we face. All of the temptations, all of the trials, all of the difficulties. But he does it not as God, but he does it as a man. And it's so, so important to understand that. Because it's not Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to go back and forth between God and man. Well, this situation is difficult, so I'm going I'm to be God in this moment. It's I'm going to enter into this world fully as a man. I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice myself, give my life up. And I think over and over, the writers and the, the preachers of the New Testament say it like this. Um, this is in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. With the help of wicked man, men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to have its hold on him. Why is that important? Because I believe what happened in Jesus' death is Jesus gave up the ability to raise himself from the dead. When Jesus decides to go the road of the cross and to lay down his life for this world, he willingly gives up his ability 
to raise himself from the dead. He uses it not for his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, going on to verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God raised Jesus from the dead. He raised him from the dead. You have to understand, unity is a possibility. But self-sacrifice is the foundation of unity. You do not ever get to unity with a people that say, well, it's just going to be my way or no one else gets their way. You know, the Burger King world, have it your way. We want everything our way and our opinion and our rightness. And so often in our world, and unfortunately way too often in our churches, our way trumps Christ's way of self-sacrificial love. What does unity look like? Is unity a possibility? Yes. What does it look like? Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. But if we do that, but if we do that, it's going to cost us. But unity costs. It has a great cost. Unity costs God His Son. It costs Jesus His life. And it's going to cost you and I. It's going to cost us our willingness and our desire to be right. Our desire to win. To be on top. And you think, okay, well, well why, why is it a big deal? Can't we just go back and just kind of, we'll have our generational thing and you have your generational thing. And, but the beauty of the body of Christ is in its diversity. The beauty of the body is the diversity of the body. That, that we all come here not because of what we've done, not because of what we, but because of what Christ has done for us. And the same like-mindedness, just as often as he said joy. 19 times in Philippians he says joy. 16 times he talks about our mind. And every time it's the focus of our mind. What does it focus on? It's focused on Jesus. What, what does it focus on in Philippians 2? 5 through 11, it's focused on a life that's submissive, servant-filled, self-sacrificial life of Christ. Is unity a possibility? Yes. And the way is Jesus. The way has always been Jesus. There is no other way to unity than through Jesus. Unity wins the day. But here, someone must go first. Because in our mind, if they would get it right, if they would change, if they would do... But what Paul says is, no, it's on you. And it's on me. We have to be willing to go first. We, we have to be willing to go first driving down Broadway in rush hour traffic at Christmas time. 
You have to be willing to go first at work when your coworker gets under your skin. Or when you've had a really rough day and you walk in the door and you're tired and exhausted and your kids are getting under your skin. You have to be willing to go first online on that social media stuff that, that we have such great opinions on. Someone has to be willing to go first. So hear, hear me. The journey to unity is a pretty short one. It's not hard. And it's not a very long journey either. Because the, the, the journey towards unity is really only about 20 inches long. You know that? For, for most people, your knees are about 20 inches off the ground. What does the journey towards unity look like? It looks like the king of the universe bowing down on his knees and washing his disciples' feet. It looks like the king of the universe submitting his life, laying his life down for you and for me. See, this journey towards unity begins right here with you and I. It begins with surrender. It, it begins with the confession that we make that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and as Paul goes on to say that one day every tongue in heaven and earth is going to confess. Every knee is going to bow before King Jesus. And the question is, will you? Not, not just ceremonially. Not, not just because you're supposed to. But actually surrendering your life to allow God to raise you from the dead. And that's not just a one day one-time journey. It's an everyday occurrence. Father, today, we surrender again. And Father, so often we surrender and we want to take back control. And our control and our desire and our pride makes unity so, so difficult. And with all the diver diversity in this room, all the diversity in this world, it seems like an impossibility. But Father, the goal has never been about unity. The goal has always been about the kingdom of God being coming to earth as it is in heaven. It's always been the goal. And so Father, today, would you help us begin in a place of sacrifice, of surrender, Father, dying to ourself once again and being raised to new life in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Father, I pray for every person in this room that we would live a life fully surrendered to Jesus.
And Father, that through our life, this world would see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Father, we love You. We thank You. We worship You. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' most beautiful and precious name. Amen.